It's kind of surreal to be back. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for having me back. Um, as Father said, I've now been, the time does fly, I've been a teaching as a professor at the University of San Diego for the last five years. I teach theology in the theology and religion department, and I especially focus on the types of philosophy. I, my PhD was focused on, and my teaching continues to be focused on, the types of philosophy that are that are dominant today, um, and that people rightly fear, but also um, often have misconceptions and don't understand that, how should I put it, that the church is always in a stronger position being, looking for the good and what it can affirm, and being a, a an embodiment of what is good regardless of what forces are pushing against us, then sitting in a defensive crouch, just trying to fend everything off. Right. So I'll, I'll start by saying that if, and you can probably tell from uh, the way I titled the overarching thing, although the, the postmodernism friend or foe, can, yeah, okay. um, that I'm not just gonna come in here with a hatchet saying postmodernism's bad, nor am I gonna come in and say, oh, we should all be like just postmoderns. Um, what I'm going to do right now is do the kind of classic, uh, what they tell you with public speaking, right? Tell, tell people what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then I'll tell you what I, what I, what I told you at the end, right? So you, <laughs> you give people a roadmap. So today, um, I'm going to talk about like the terms like postmodernism and relativism, and then also I'm going to talk a little bit about Marxism as well and how these are forming what people actually call or talk about in terms of our like ethics today and, and our politics and our spirituality and our in, in the buzzword like social justice and so forth. I'm gonna talk about what's healthy and maybe unhealthy about that from our perspective and try to give us a better sense of what we can affirm in our culture and, and and then tomorrow, even further develop those themes, and I'll just kind of give you the, my answer, so to speak, right now, is that if we're looking for a way to combat our culture, I'm not gonna be able to, I'm not gonna give you um, lots of nifty arguments to give people. What I am going to say is that the answer to these things is for us to recognize that we and this is where I'm very Father Thomas Hofko-ish, okay? We have created these things through our failure to be church. And unless we are going to take up the mantle and realize that, that, that Christ has given us all of the tools to actualize what it is that people that have espoused relativism are actually, for the most part, looking for, unless we recognize that the church has actually given us the tools to be better Marxists, so to speak, than the Marxists, we're going to our, find ourselves in a losing position again and again and again. Now, I can imagine right now, a lot of people are like, what did I come to? This is not what I was expecting. Any of you may not like what I have to say, I don't know. But we'll, uh, <laughs> that's what Q&A is for, right? <laughs> so, may God bless us all right now and uh, grant us grace. So, like I said, I would say postmodernism, relativism, Marxism, these sorts of things are what, I'll use more delicate 
terminology um, since we're in a church building right now, the illegitimate children of Christianity. Um, and what do I mean by that? What I mean is that they are all rooted in a value set that came from Christianity. This is something that if we don't know, like kind of the history of Western philosophy, the history of, you know, um, social movements from ancient Greece until now, it can seem like crazy to say that sort of thing, right? Because as many of us all know, Marxist-Leninists in Russia and in China and so forth created mass destruction and devastation and death, authoritarian regimes and so on and so forth. Or people hear about like postmodernism and relativism and they're thinking, oh, this is where, you know, and this is where all of the various sorts of things like feminism, gay rights, transgender issues, et cetera, come from. Uh, how could that have anything to do with Christianity? Well, I'll tell you right now. Christianity proclaimed at its core to the world that every single human being is of equal value. That was not a given in the ancient world or across cultures. Right? If you lived in ancient Sparta, for example, in Greece, they would take the weak, people born ill or handicapped, and throw them off a cliff. They would actually do a sort of, you know, eugenics to try and make the city stronger by eliminating the weak and only allowing the strong to survive. Right? So it was Platonic philosophy first, but then Christianity along with it that really brings this message, everyone is special, everyone is important, everyone is of equal value. And when you see the people today that are often seen as enemies of Christianity, oftentimes, if you really peel back the layers, they are driven by those same very motivations that I'm talking about. So, <coughs> Let's, uh, let's unpack a little bit about this. Um, or actually, let me read a quote to you that is a, what I think a perfect example. This is actually by a Roman Catholic philosopher, Michel Henri. But he's describing our postmodern situation like this. And I think this will cover a lot of the things that people are anxious about today. What we find ourselves in today are that people are debased, humiliated, despised and despising themselves, trained in school to despise themselves, that they count for nothing, that they're just particles and molecules. And then they admire everything lesser than themselves and abhor everything that is greater than themselves. They no longer see those things that are worthy of love and adoration because they're reduced to being idols that feel nothing, to automations, to basically robots, and then replaced by those things, by computers and robots. We live in a world where people are chased out of their work and their homes, pushed into corners and gutters, huddled on subway benches, sleeping in cardboard boxes. People replaced by abstractions, by economic entities, profits, and money. People treated mathematically, digitally, statistically, counted like animals and counting for much less. People turned away from life's truth, caught in all the traps and marvels where this life is denied, ridiculed, mimicked, simulated, absent. P 
people given over to be insensible and become themselves insensible, whose eyes are empty as a fish's. Which I think about every time I stare at my iPhone and zombie walk through this sort of postmodern technological apocalypse that's going on. Uh, <laughs> that was a joke. That was a joke. Uh, dazed people, <laughs> I was trying to break the tension of his intensity here. All right, dazed people devoted to specters and spectacles and always exposed their own invalidity and bankruptcy, devoted to false knowledge, and their sense of self reduced to empty shells, to heads, to brains. Their emotions and loves reduced to just being chemicals and glandular secretions. People who have been liberated by making them think that their sexuality is just a natural process when it is really the site and place of infinite desire. And he has a capital D for desire there. People whose responsibility and dignity have no definition anymore. People who in the general degradation will envy the animals. People who will, they will want to die but not want life. It is not just any God today who is still able to save us, but when the shadow of death is looming over the world, the one who is living. So Michel Henri here is like saying, like he describes the bleak situation that we find ourselves in in the modern world, and he's reaffirming that the only, like in his view, the only thing that can lead us out of that is Christ, the one who is living. And he's very much in line with the way Orthodox talk about this in the sense that for Henri, truth is not a, set, a bunch of set of propositions or ideas that you need to hold to, the right concepts in your mind. It's a person. It's Christ himself. Christ is the truth, and Christ is the answer. And so often when we have this, like, well, what do we do about these things? In some ways, we're making it too complicated for ourselves. Be Christ. Be Christ. That's the answer. That's the answer to these things. Now, as my old advisor here at UCSB said, the answer to every theological question is God. But the key, <laughs> and as I tell my theology students, that's true, but if you just write that on an exam, you're not going to get a good grade. Because the trick is, the trick is unpacking how it is God that is the answer. So when I say it's Christ, you know, I'm only, what, 10 minutes into this talk. Obviously, I'm going to expand on these things today and, and tomorrow. The actual, but why I'm emphasizing this right off the bat is, again, like I was saying before, we want to rethink the wheel, right? It, it's, it's a, oh, my gosh, you know, every, every 10 years, oh, my gosh, the world's going to the hell in a handbasket. What are we going to do now? How do we do this? How do we keep our kids? How do we... Actually, <laughs> a rather straightforward answer, but it requires clarity on what is actually going on and what our own motivations are. Right? Right? In 1 John, what, is it, what does it say about the relationship between love and fear? Right? We tend to think love and hate are opposites. But in 1 John, it's love and fear that are essentially opposites. As perfect love casts out fear. And a lot of times when we respond to like whatever current trend is going on, we're responding out of fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of change, fear of all these sorts of things. And then pe powerful people get a hold of these notions and fears, 
and they spin it, and they write all sorts of articles, and they confuse people with all these sorts of things, and it goes viral on Facebook, and then everyone's like, ah, okay. And half the time, it's not even true, or it's halfway confused as to what, what is being talked about. So, in that sense, I'm going to back up and actually just talk about, like, what is postmodernism, and what is relativism, and why would I say something like, it's not orthodox, but it's more orthodox than you think. The key to postmodernism is the idea that there is no longer one meta-narrative that just explains everything. That's what I mean by meta-narrative. There's not one super story. There's not one like, here it is, this is the thing that's figured it out. In other words, I'll give three examples here. History has, in the past, historians have tried to create what they call meta-narratives. Here's why the whole world has unfolded the way that it did. Okay? Religious people have tried to create meta-narratives. Every single thing is figured out. The scholastics of the Catholic Church, Thomas Aquinas especially, were meta-narrative writers where they tried to explain every little thing. If this happens, then that. And what does God think about this? And he thinks this because of that. And what's the big meta-narrative of today? Science. Science is another one that tries to claim this kind of meta-narrative status. Now, that will be the thing that explains everything and answers all of our questions and, even further, solves all of our problems. Now, based off of what I just said, and I'm going to start making it a little interactive here because it's weird for me as a professor not to. So, and I'm not giving a sermon, so hey, why not? Um, <laughs> why, just from what I've said already, why would this sound like really bad news, and in some way is, for religions in general, but also to some extent orthodox? But there's not one story that just explains everything for us. <laughs> because often we look at it like that, right? Like we do. We have one story that explains everything for us, right? Um, and so anything that seems to like threat, I mean, in, in other words, um, these, these other two disciplines I just talked about, history and science, have themselves become the two biggest um, enemies of <coughs> what often passes for Christianity. Why? You know, you get, you get a historian proving that, like, this, you know, hagiography or this, like, scriptural text or whatever, it was, didn't come together exactly the way people, and now it's a crisis, right? Well, the religion said this, but the historians say this, right? Or the earth seems to be good, but now the evolutionists or the biologists or whatever say this, right? And now you have different competing narratives that because people expect one thing to explain everything, they're thrown into crisis when you can't fit them all together. Okay. Um, but what I'm going to say is that meta-narratives, and I know the religion part of it will be uh, something of a, that would probably be the most controversial claim of this, but I'll say meta-narratives are dangerous. These all-encompassing stories are dangerous. Why are they dangerous? Because there's always somebody or something 
that doesn't quite fit in the story. It doesn't resonate with the story. That gets excluded by the story. How can I first explain that? Like with history, the way history operated for a really long time was the sense that history was essentially Europe and the story of Europe and Europeans coming to know themselves and creating democracy, that's, that's what the point of the world is. And it was inevitable. It's what the philosopher Hegel called the end of history, meaning it's not like history's over and nothing. It's the goal of history. History was all leading us to this point, to democratic capitalism, as, as Hegel thought. Well, if that's the case, then any sort of culture or whatnot that does not immediately resonate with that is considered backwards, is considered wrong, right? This is where we can have scenarios where our own orthodox brothers and sisters are in countries that get bombed by all sorts of different powers because they don't fit with our narrative of how the flow of human history is supposed to go. Jewish people in the Holocaust were targeted for extermination because they did not fit into that meta-narrative of how European history was supposed to unfold. So with the way we understand history, I think meta-narrative and its danger can be seen as problematic. I think most people could agree that there's like one, whichever way you write history, if you don't fit into that, it can create massive problems like the ones I just said. Or like in, in I mentioned I'm going to talk about Marxism. Marxism itself created a meta-narrative of history, that the next step after capitalism has to be communism. And then it forced everybody to do it, so, such that many people don't know this, but the USSR was just as bad to its natives as the US was, because they needed to become part of the collectivist society too. They had to leave their old ways of life and so on and so forth. Right. Now, let's talk about science, and then I'll come back to religion. So science as meta-narrative, as I said, this probably the more dominant one today. How many of you are familiar with the new atheists, the so-called new atheists? Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, <laughs> the late Christopher Hitchens, okay. Um, they all were big on this idea of science as a meta-narrative. Science is the story. Religion is the problem. Science is our savior. And not just our savior, but it's the thing that explains everything. Um, this is why scientists also got so excited over the discovery of the Higgs boson particle a, a few years ago. And they started calling it the God particle. Right? Well, we finally found this thing that from there we'll be able to build up a whole theory that ties everything together. Um, and then, well, actually, What's dangerous about that? Anyone want to throw out a comment on why is science as meta narrative dangerous? <laughs> I 
Yeah, in fact, science as meta-narrative runs the risk of actually undoing science itself, right? If you actually be like, the Earth, you know, whatever, like just fill in your blank, like proposition now. Um, actually, here's the one I always use in class. Um, Isaac Newton came up with the theories of, of um, mechanics and so forth of how force, velocity, et cetera, works. Well, by the time you get to Albert Einstein, that gets overthrown with the theory of relativity. But if you're sitting around going, nope, Newton figured it all out, then you make Einstein's discoveries impossible. Well, if you just reduplicate that with Einstein and say again, well, Einstein figured it out, there's nothing else to, you're just going to keep actually crushing real knowledge from happening and real inquiry from happening. And then the other thing, too, that happens with science as a meta-narrative is that science, when it, the best scientists understand themselves as merely working with a tool. Okay. They're working with a tool, like the person working with a hammer. A hammer, if you're going to be like, a hammer explains everything about the world. It doesn't. It can hang a picture. It can murder a person. It, it really can. It's, it's, it's only as good as the person's values operating the science. Right? So not only is science as meta narrative dangerous to itself, it doesn't understand that it's a tool, but it also becomes unwittingly often in the service of other types of value sets that then wield it in a more dangerous way as I've said, tying it into what I was saying about history as meta-narrative. You can use science to cure cancer, or you can use it to manufacture Zyklon B and exterminate six million Jewish people and others as well. Right? Um, so what about religion as meta-narrative? Okay. All truth is clear-cut, objective truth. Um, I think there's two, I'm going to suggest just right now, two, two issues that are problematic with it. One is, this is where we get this unhealthy notion. This is actually much more like the scholastics of people really, really, really always kind of, what's the orthodox view on X? What's the orthodox view on Y? What's the orthodox view on Z? Father, this happened the other day. What's the orthodox view on what happened to me? And, and, and and often they're not content with like, well, Christ and his love, and you use that to like kind of understand the situation. No, they want an answer. Is it right or is it wrong? Is it good or is it bad? Should I like it? Should I hate it? Okay. Um, and that actually is fundamentally counterproductive, just like the science scenario, to our spirituality. Okay. If you have just decided, here's the right answer, you've actually closed yourself off to deeper answers or answers that in other contexts are more appropriate. Let me give a humiliating story about myself, hopefully, okay, to illustrate this point. So when I was in seminary, I, uh, I it, part, of, part of our seminary training was to do uh, hospital hours, hours as a hospital chaplain, like trainee, essentially. Right? It was usually rather boring. Um, you just kind of wander from from uh, hotel, uh, hotel room, although they are related words. But anyway, hospital <laughs> room to hospital room, okay, 
you wander from hospital room to hospital room asking people if they want to talk to a, you know, a priest in training of sorts or something. And usually it's like, no, nah, I'm fine, Father. I'm just in like to get my appendix removed. It's fine. You know, like, you just, okay, nice. Hi, good to see you. Um, and one day I walk in and this woman, she just grabs my hand like, like tightly at the second I walk in. I had no idea what I was walking into in this room. She just looks me dead in the eye and she goes, why am I suffering? Why is God letting me suffer? And I look at her and then I look down and see that her legs have just been amputated from her severe diabetes. And I actually, thank God, had a humble moment of being like, I'm just praying to myself, God, I got nothing. I got nothing. Give me something to say, because I've got nothing. <laughs> and it just came out. It came out, and I, I can't even re replicate it anymore, because that's the moral of the story, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, but it was something about the nature of Christ's suffering, that he's here with us, he suffers with us, that in her suffering, she can potentially draw near to Christ and know him and know that he's here with her, suffering with her, and so forth. And she was just, like, crying, and, like, that's so beautiful, and what? You know, thank you so much. Come back and see me again. And it, so it was great. I'm like, oh, that was awesome. Thank you, God. So then the next week, can you see where this is probably going? The next week, <laughs> I'm making the rounds again. It's kind of boring. And then finally I walked in the room. Another intense moment. This guy's dying of AIDS. Same question. Why are you suffering? And both the one guy, the, the lady was Catholic. The other one was, I think, Anglican. Okay. Why am I suffering? I'm like, ha-ha, I know the answer to this one now. And I give him the exact same spiel I gave the lady that had had her legs amputated. And he just stares at me afterwards. <laughs> I was like, is that helpful? And he's like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> and <laughs> it was a really important rebuke in my life to thinking like, oh, it's not about, it's not like, oh, I figured it out, and now this one-size-fits-all answer is going to apply to everyone. Okay. So let's return to this. Postmodernism is something of a threat, especially when it is abused and taken out of context. Okay. And I want to really, really emphasize this point, because we tend to react to thought systems out of horror story scenarios, and don't realize that that applies just as much to us. Okay. In other words, if if you um, if you understand that a post that people who subscribe to postmodernism or relativism sometimes will do things like, well, there is no real truth. It's just like what's true to me and what's true for you and what's true for any, and, you know, and everyone can just do whatever they want. Well, yeah, there are some people that use this notion that there's not one narrative that can capture everything to do that, to just be licensed to do whatever they want. Frankly, Mussolini did that. Mussolini openly said, I'm a relativist. Nothing matters. I can do whatever I want. Okay. But Westboro Baptist Church uses the word Christian to do all their fun stuff. <laughs> the pilgrims used the word Christian to exterminate the abominable race of savages, to exact quote one of the Mathers. Right? 
So <laughs> any sort of ideas can be used to do awful things. Right? Um, so the, there's clearly a negative to postmodernism when people run with it and go crazy with it, and the idea of relativism. But I want to point out something key about postmodern thought, which is while it is a threat to a religious person thinking they've got all the answers to everything, it's also a threat to the idea that science has all the answers. Postmodern philosophers have been some of the biggest critics of the idea that science can actually answer our problems or even tell us what we are. Postmodernists have actually been at the forefront of saying, no, green is not just a wavelength of light. Green is green. Green is the thing that you see. Boiling it down to its scientific components is not do it justice. People 2,000 years ago knew what green was, just like we do, without knowing anything about wavelengths of light. Focus on human experience is a big part of the healthier, in my view, sides of postmodernism does. The other thing is this notion of truth is relative. Now, as I just said, when people say truth is relative, that gets used, I think, in an unhealthy way to say it's all just whatever you want it to be. But that's not what the actual core philosophers that laid down these ideas meant by it. So like Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Christian existentialist, actually said, when he says all truth is subjective, all truth is relative, it's meaning relational, which again is something that orthodox are not at all hostile to. The idea that truth is embodied personhood and is how we relate to one another, that's where it's to be found, is actually found throughout not only our contemporary theologians, but through like many of the church fathers. What do I mean by relational, right? Christ, again, is the truth, and it, truth is found in not believing just the right things about him, but in actually having that relationship. And those moments of growth and aha and so forth are going to happen differently for different people. Um, I hadn't thought I was going to say this, but like this last week I gave the sermon, and right, the, the epistle was the one of, you know, you I am of Cephas, I am of Paul, I am of so-and-so, I am of the, you know, all the different, uh, uh, in the, in the people that Paul is rebuking are claiming, I, I follow this different person. We, t we do this in orthodoxy, too, because we realize, like, orthodoxy itself, and sometimes people don't realize it, but orthodoxy itself allows for competing narratives within a certain umbrella. What do I mean? We get some people like, oh. Read, you've got to read this book by Calistos Ware. It's so great. Yeah. Don't read Calistos Ware. He's a liberal heretic. Okay? And, oh, you've got to read Father Seraphim Rose. He's the best. Don't read Father Seraphim Rose. He was like a traditionalist lunatic who thought there was a computer that was the Antichrist in the Netherlands. Okay? And there's, you know, Father Alexander. True, true fact. Anyway, true facts. That's a thing now. Um, the <laughs> <laughs> Father Alexander Schmemann, he's the best. Read him. You know what? I heard they burned his books at, in some places in Russia. Like it, also true. Okay. Uh, Elder Ephraim, he has the best monasteries. No, Mother Victoria has the best monasteries. No, and it, okay. 
and the reality is, I probably wouldn't have to make you guess that hard of which of that list I just gave I tend to prefer versus which ones <laughs> I don't. But what I am willing to also say is, I see real spiritual fruit born in people's lives because people respond differently to sometimes the more severe voices, sometimes the more expansive or gracious type voices. There's not just one size that fits all. Or let me put it another way. Um, Sigmund Freud, the very famous slash infamous founder of psychotherapy, Sigmund Freud had lots of critiques of religion. Mainly, he was also one of the science as meta-narrative kind of guys. But his biggest, I think, or one of his biggest, most potent critiques of religion was that, excuse me, sorry, was that it imposes one size fits all on everybody as an answer. So Freud, in other words, and Freud had a very pessimistic view of humanity. Freud said that the best thing you can do is not be happy in this life, but just be functionally unhappy. Okay. So, <laughs> so Freud believed psychotherapy was to take you from dysfunctionally unhappy, aka neurosis, to functionally unhappy, being able to actually deal with the fact that life is what it is. Okay. And so for Freud, psychoanalysis was the best way to move people from neurotic, dysfunctionally unhappy, to functionally unhappy. But what he also says in his writings about religion is that religion can do this too. Emphasis on the can. But what Freud says is that religion, because it imposes a one-size-fits-all on everybody, while it helps some people be functionally unhappy, it actually takes other people and makes them more crazy. And I don't think I need to supply you with evidence in this room that it does both, right? <laughs> but here's the beautiful thing to me, anyway, about Orthodox. If you read through the monastic literature, if you read through the Desert Fathers, if you read through our penance manuals and our canons, Canon Trulo 102, okay, the final canon, the entire book of canons um, in the Pedalion, okay, in our book of canons, our final canon there says, and most of us have heard of that the bishops have economia to like apply the canons, it specifically says that the bishop needs to be able to make the judgment of when to apply the canon strictly when to apply it relaxed, when to not apply it at all, in order to heal the serpent's bite and restore people to health. Okay. And in that regard, you know, I mean, the, to quote the late Father Thomas Hopko again, you know, he talks simple, simple things like in Lent. You've got, you got one kid who's like a little, We've got one kid who's like super lazy and just doesn't want to do any of the fasting or go to church or anything. Well, you might have to be hard on that kid and say like, no, you really got to buckle down here. Okay. 
other kid might get like a power trip and just love rules too by nature. And Father Tom was like, yeah, you might want to, you might have to make that kid like eat a hot dog like the second day of Lent. <laughs> just to remind them that that's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. Okay. But my point is this, that if in my study of our tradition, this relational, the relativity of truth in the sense that you have to discern in relationship where each person is as a core aspect of our, of our spirituality and what potentially makes us different from a lot of other forms of religion, except for when we try to imitate those other forms of religion instead and try to come up with our absolute answers for everyone in every situation. In pastoral work, I would suggest this is a very important thing to be able to know, to not do what I did in the hospital. Right? <laughs> to not think that because one answer or one perspective worked with one person, that that's the same thing to like push on another person. And you see how this is not the same thing as the wild misuse of postmodernism and relativism that says, oh, just believe whatever you want. Right? Here's another example what it means to say that truth is subjective, because people hear truth is subjective, oh, it means like this is my truth, that's your truth, that's the, okay. Truth, the idea that truth is subjective, again, with the, with the best and most thorough thinkers, in my opinion, on this sort of stuff, is that what deserves the dignity of truth is that which actually moves you as a human being, as a human subject. It moves you, it animates you, it's your purpose in life. And that is something that is not, you know, in other words, two plus two equals four from this perspective are, is a fact, but it's not truth in this deeper sense. what postmodernity at its best is trying to get people to see is that these different narratives can actually complement each other. They can complement each other. So now I'm going to give another personal example. So my grandmother passed away uh, about three and a half years ago. And to this day is like the closest person to me that I've lost and left a very, you know, it was a very intense and complex grieving process and so forth. Science as meta-narrative, if really taken to its extreme, would be like, hey, someone who gave you a quarter of your genetics has stopped uh, respirating, stopped doing the Krebs cycle in their mitochondria and their cells or something. Okay. <laughs> but there just another body that's stopped uh, chemically operating a certain way. Now, I think most of us, if we take, like, let science be that, um, almost the, the most hardened, like, atheist would be like, that's, no, 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 that's not a good way to explain it, okay? It doesn't capture the truth of death, right? Just describing it in terms of cells no longer working or brain waves ceasing or all these sorts of things. 
or as I tell my students, if you were there in the hospital with me as my grandmother is dying and my uncle is like draped, my you know, kind of black sheep, wild child uncle is draped like over her, like weeping for the type of son he had been. You walk in and you're like, well, clinically this person was simply a mass of cells that is no longer uh, conscious. I probably might have punched you. That's bad. That's not the thing to say in that scenario. Yet, it's also not completely wrong. Where is the scientific narrative helpful in that scenario? When the line went flat, when the line went flat, when the heartbeat stopped, when all that other, it helped us to move and to let go and to know that like it was done. Before science came along, I don't know if you know, but there's like tons of people that were buried basically comatose and then came and then got to die again inside the coffin, okay? So science really has, and its narrative of what life and death is, has something to offer, but it doesn't have the full story. Right? And so in this sense, the healthier, the healthier ways of thinking about postmodern thought is like, Science has something very important to say. History has something very important to say. And our religious truth has something very important to say, but they have to listen to each other to do the most effective good in the world. Now, again, in the Q&A, if you want to push back on that, I'm happy to field questions. But the, the key here is that each of these things speaks a truth and seeing the way they relate, the way they are relative, relative to each other is, I think, essential to understanding how this world operates now. And in this sense, I would say it's better. See, that's the other thing is we get really romantic about the past. Right? Oh, the world's going, oh, everyone's turning, the, losing Christian morale. Really? When was this country full of Christian morality? When was that? Yes. When 95% of Americans didn't believe in interracial marriage in 1952. That was when we were all Christian, filled with the love of Christ. <laughs> Go to any decade, and I'll have a little tidbit like that for you. Okay. <laughs> So when, what, was it the, oh, I know, it was the Byzantine Empire, right? When they used to have slaves and castrate boys and, you know, did you know? Like, just Wikipedia, slavery in the Byzantine Empire, have fun with that. Um, I don't say that to scandalize you. I'm saying that to not, we place our faith in the wrong things. The Byzantine Empire is not Christ. Gave us some good things, it gave us some bad things, but it's not Christ. The Byzantine Empire, the only religions that were legal were Christianity and Judaism. And the Jews had to make sure to read in Greek so they could know what their shifty selves are saying. Okay, read the Code of Justinian, it says it. Like, maybe not for the word shifty, but it's there. Okay. In other words, we think we want some like previous, but we don't. A lot of this stuff that I'm talking about here is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the church to actually be the church and speak this relational 
truth again. Because what I think, what I would say is that we have the tools that if we're not afraid of science and we're not afraid of history and we're not afraid of this idea that things are relative to different people in different situations and where they're at and how they relate to God and each other. If we, under, if we don't understand that, we're going to not actually communicate Christ to people. We communicate ourselves and our opinions to people. Which, frankly, I can now. Mm, I had to quit Facebook because I'm a lunatic. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you're just focused on communicating these opinions, you often communicate something that not only is not Christ, but that is an attitude and a sensibility and so forth that other people are good and right and decent to reject. I remember hearing a story of Gandhi wanting to, like, inquiring into, like, Christianity in, in India tossed him out because he wasn't British. Well, you're going to fault him that he didn't go back? These are tough questions and tough things that require us really prayerfully reflecting on. Now, the other thing about truth as relative, in that sense, or truth is subjective that I think is important and that we also would affirm, is that if we say, um, we get meta-narratives every Mother's Day and Father's Day. How do we get meta-narratives every Mother's Day and Father's Day? Mothers are the blah, 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 you know, fill in your blank, inspirational thing. Fathers are the, you can't do that. Is that true? Is that a universal truth? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. My mom's mom was not have just did not fit that description. Drinking herself to death when my mom was like nine years old. In other words, what mother means to each person in here, when I say mother, your mother, we all have a different relational truth going on in that. Say father, child, etc. Like we all have very deep, deep emotional resonances that are quite different from each other. And these can be used powerfully to help us relate to this idea of God, right? Or they can be used in ways that make people feel like all fathers are one thing, all mothers are one thing, and it's God because father was like this, God must be like that too. Now, I'm at eight, but we started late, so I should keep going. <laughs> um, before I end the postmodernism part, I'm going to read you something that many of you may have read before and others of you will be like rather startled by. I'm not going to tell you where it comes from until after I'm done reading. 
you want something that sounds really postmodern, here we go. The definition of God. It. Now we start off with God being called an it. It <laughs> is not soul or mind, nor does it possess imagination, conviction, speech, or understanding. Nor is it speech per se, understanding per se. It cannot be spoken of, and it cannot be grasped by understanding. It does not number or order, greatness or smallness, equality or inequality, similarity or dissimilarity. It is not immovable, moving, or at rest. It has no power. It is not power, nor is it light. It does not live, nor is it life. It is not a substance, nor is it eternity or time. It cannot be grasped by the understanding, since it is neither knowledge nor truth. Sounding like Yoda right now, right? It is not kingship. It is not wisdom. It is neither one nor oneness, divinity nor goodness. Nor is it a spirit in the sense in which we understand that term. It is not sonship or fatherhood, and it is nothing known to us or to any other being. It falls neither within the predicate of non-being nor of being. Darkness and light, error and truth, it is none of these. It is beyond assertion and denial. Seems like there's zero, zero content to this, right? And it also negated what? Not a spirit in any sense we understand that term. Neither sonship nor fatherhood. From St. Dionysius the Areopagite. <laughs> One of the most influential theologians in the history of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Because what Dionysius, and Dionysius has been like a touchstone for like, what I think of the healthier side of postmodern thinking is that what Dionysius is constantly saying is every time you get closer to God in that relational understanding of his truth, the stuff, the stuff you thought you knew before, you realize you didn't know it at all. And when he negates fatherhood, sonship, the spirit, it sounds like, oh my gosh, he just negated the creed. Right? But what he's saying is, even though we came up with something like the creed, that's pointing you in a direction. But what you think of the terms Father, Son, and Spirit now, if they don't grow, <laughs> what you actually knew was, turns out to be false. You have to constantly be growing and to be like, oh yeah, that's, that was true-ish, but I'm closer to God. And I see that that was... You have to be letting go of the things you think you know so certainly. Is that not how a successful marriage has to work? Like, yeah, you know, you're, but if you really are like, I know you, there's no more mystery to your spouse. I mean, they c that can work, but it's usually not a very dynamic marriage. It's more of a like you can both sit on the couch and veg out to the TV and not bother too, too, each other too much marriage. But if it's a true relational marriage that's growing, you have to constantly realize that who you thought the other person was is always changing, deepening, your knowledge of them is changing and deepening and so forth. That is what is actually, that is another thing that is actually quite powerful about this way of looking at the truth.
Now, I was going to say a little something about Karl Marx, but I'm going to save him for tomorrow, I think, because we have probably about 10 minutes-ish today. I don't know. Let me see. I mean, here, again, like I said, today was kind of like me setting up the problems, and tomorrow I'm going to, like, talk more about what I think are the solutions. So this really is kind of like one long talk cut into two parts <laughs> more than it is two separate unrelated talks. Um, yeah, actually, I'll do the, I'll, I'll do the Marx talk. Okay. Um, Marx is one of these people who is misunderstood and seen to be like completely anti-Christianity because, well, he was very anti-Christianity. <laughs> but but um, really the reason why people react so strongly to his name is because of what is called Marxist-Leninism, right? Vladimir Lenin uh, took it to the took it in a different direction, shall we say. Okay? And so Marxism as an aggressive atheism, authoritarianism, and wealth redistribution is what most of us hear when we hear about Marx. And like I said, that's all true of Marxist-Leninism, USSR, China, and most of their little like satellite allies. But as I was saying before, if we're gonna like just throw him in the trash, like, oh, they were Marxist dictators, they killed every, well, we installed, by we, I mean the US government, installed General Pinochet, a fascist dictator in Chile, to be dictator, capitalist dictator. And he killed lots of people, okay? And we're friends with the authoritarian leader of Saudi Arabia, who does all these, like, it's usually selective picking and choosing of what people do with these ideologies that is the thing. But I'm just gonna take us to two key things that people don't, often don't realize about Marx. One is he wasn't really about wealth redistribution. He wanted a different society. What he thought as like what we're living in now is basically just a modified feudal system. Meaning what? In the feudal system, there were the lords that owned everything, and there were peasants who, um, who had to do the work for the lord. And they get their beating or whatever if they didn't, you know, and so forth. They harvest the grain, they, go, they do most of the work, and then it gets taken from them, and they get a little tiny bit to eat, okay? And Marx was like, yeah, well, now what you do is you get to kind of pick and choose which lord you do that for. And instead, he gives you this thing called money that you trade in for goods instead, okay? But in the end, real liberation and freedom of, and, and a sense of equality of all people has not been as furthered as much as people think. So there's the first part. But here's the second part that I think startles people a bit more. Marx believed that, it, that our current system fundamentally dehumanizes everyone because he thought, and this, I want you to think of Genesis on this part, okay. he thought that it is a, the most natural human thing, one of the most fundamental things to our happiness, to take joy in our work. This basic principle of what's better, what's truly more enjoyable, buying some cookies at Albertsons or making your own. Okay, well, if you can't make good ones, then probably buying at Albertsons. But <laughs> hopefully you see the point. There's a real different kind of satisfaction 
one gets out of hard work and actually being able to enjoy the fruits of your own labor. And what Marx is essentially saying is, we now find ourselves in a scenario, I'm going to pick something, you know, more Twinkies, you know, the Twinkie factory. First of all, you're not even making anything of value in the first place, so no one should. <laughs> but the Twinkies, they shouldn't be made, but let's, let's, assume, <laughs> let's assume they're okay. Now, the point is, the workers actually making the Twinkies, they don't even get to take joy in the fact that they're making the Twinkies because they have no stake in the success of the company. And the owner also takes no real joy in the creation of the, of the Twinkies because he's not actually involved in the creation of the Twinkies. That separation of human beings from meaningful work is one of the things that he found most like depressing in life, destroying about um, our culture. And if you think about Genesis, what is one of the curses? Yeah, to see, to come to view labor as toil, to view work as like a, a chore that is like just something you have to do that you can't. Whereas in Christ, there's an idea that where work becomes a joyful burden. So what I'm trying to say here again is the postmodernists and relativists on the one hand and the Marxists on the other hand are actually taking ideas that I think are actually fundamental to the way we look at things and then running with them because they saw Christians as no longer actually standing up for this stuff. So what I'm trying to say here is that the answer is not to how to say back to people, well, oh, this is what's wrong with that, and this is what's wrong with that, and this, but to actually be able to take the what's at stake for the relativist, the what's at stake for the postmodernist, what's at stake for the Marxist, and actually be able to show people how the church and how Christianity is better or ought to be better or can be better at doing those things than those systems are. To actually take seriously the people and, and the people that get marginalized and excluded and so forth. Like part of the thing I'm going to talk about tomorrow, just to give like a little bit of a preview, is I want to talk about like transgender issues, I'm going to talk about LGB issues, I'm going to talk about feminism, et cetera, and so forth. Like you take something like transgenderism, part of the reason why that happens is because of a meta-narrative that says a male must be masculine. A female must be feminine. Then you have a whole history of Christians teasing the sissy boy or assuming he must be gay because he's a more effeminate young man. Or because a woman is more masculine, mocking them and calling them all sorts of, you know, tomboy is a little more innocuous and so But if people get marginalized, they don't fit in. So then what do they do? They go create alternative structures in which they will. So these things have a history of where we <laughs> are 
often have been historically, maybe not personally, but sometimes personally too, complicit in helping have create the conditions because we failed to be the answers for these people that are hurting, for the economically dispossessed, for the people that don't fit into masculine, feminine categories perfectly the way like society ought to think they are, and so forth. But like I said, tomorrow is where I'm going to like unpack that that stuff a bit more. I think we're definitely at about the time break for today. And now you can have at me with the questions. <laughs> yes. Um, he was asking if it was evidence-based. Um, in that sense, I mean, if you do, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, here's kind of the preliminary answer I'll give to that: is that a lot of times what, and the and the people in the advocating for the transgender community mess this up all the time themselves. Gender and biological sex are not even in gender theory the same thing. In other words, male and female are biological sex. Masculine and feminine are gender, right? And so it's actually weird. Like, this is one of my biggest things that where I feel like we have a better answer. So I'm going to turn around. But <laughs> of No, that they are, the, the associations are there, but also the point is cross-culturally, the expected roles are not always the same. Even, right? That there's a component to which these are, like for example, let's give, let's give an example. Caitlyn Jenner. What exactly makes Caitlyn Jenner feminine? See, here's the weird thing. The transgender thing actually undoes, I'll say a bit more about this tomorrow, it actually undoes what gay rights and feminism were trying to do. What do I mean by that? It takes things that are supposed to be like relative, that masculine and feminine are fairly relative and depends on the like person. Maybe it's a overall norm for males to be masculine or something. But it makes it now, that's what everyone should be. Right? So in the sense of Caitlyn Jenner, what makes Caitlyn Jenner a woman, supposedly, is a traditionally feminine name, long hair, and lipstick. Well, none of those things are actually objective truths. Right? There's, <laughs> there's nothing that makes Caitlyn inherently a female name, but especially long hair is not inherently feminine, nor is lipstick. But in our culture it is, so this person switches to that, which then reinforces that all women should have long hair and wear lipstick, right? Like, it's actually a very confused set of theories that is opening up a way more can of worms than I think these people intend to open, right? But 
my point is that when you take, I mean, I know, I know friends who, you know, had a friend in high school. Everyone made fun of him. Oh, he's effeminate. He's effeminate. He's effeminate. He's gay. He's this. And then, you know, 25 years old, eventually comes out of the closet. After having dated a bunch of women. But it was like at a certain point, he just kind of gave up. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think we can know all the causes. These things are complex, yeah. But, but that at least helps clarify, like, where I'm saying or now. Like, uh, what I'm trying to say here is that, like, there's... I think we would, I mean, I would hope, or actually, I don't even go there. Father Thomas Hopko, again, did a, did a study of, like, lives of saints. And in terms of this idea of gender, what he says, what you find in most male hagiography of males is that they come to embody also stereotypically feminine traits. So they'll be called compassionate and nurturing and even motherly and so on and so forth. And then you have some uh, the, the female saints who come to be described as like brave, more fierce and you know battle-ready than any other any man or you know these kinds. Of the idea is that the idea is that full full humanity transcends gender stereotypes, right? And so what I'm saying is that the mocking of people or the idea of like trying to push people that a male should always look or act or sound or talk or you know oh he's his vocal voice is wimpy sounding, he's a sissy boy, these sorts of things, like, that's not Jesus, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, no, definitely don't hear me as creating a new meta-narrative, in other words, like, this is the sole cause of this thing happening, what I'm saying is, we actually have a better answer for people who don't conform to gender stereotypes than the transgender movement. But instead, when we like dig in and just like want to trash it, instead of saying, no, here's how, here's how to approach when you don't feel like you fit with your gender. Right? That is the kind of thing I'm, I'm pointing towards, if that makes a bit more sense. No, and, and that actually is part of the, what I'm trying to communicate, is that every generation of the church has needed to adapt and express itself in ways that address these the contemporary concerns and problems and so forth. I mean, people, people tend to flip out, you know, we flip out today and we go, the sky is falling, sky is falling, when we don't, in part because we don't know our own history, like just those tidbits I threw out about slavery in the Byzantine Empire, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we have the Seventh Ecumenical Council solved iconoclasm. No, it didn't. There were councils before it that affirmed icons were bad. There were councils after it that affirmed icons were bad. It was a hundred years of Orthodox killing each other over this subject. In retrospect, we single out that council as the moment. But if you lived during that time period, there would have been no way. If you were the average person on the ground, you would have been like, the icons good? Are they bad? I don't know. The emperor said this, the, this patriot, and now they did a new council. For a hundred years. That's whole generations living and dying. Right. So this idea that, you know, that the, 
these issues are complex and have to be worked out in every generation. That's, that's actually a really, thank you for that. That's a very helpful like clarification in the sense that the big story, because obviously as, we, as I was saying at the beginning, why it can feel like a threat is that Christianity is a big story, right? The point is to not make that story automatically with absolute certainty that cannot interact productively with other stories, other big stories, right? So it may be still your guiding story, but when new evidence comes from history or from science or for these sorts of things, you know, and this is where, um, by the way, you know, again, I'll, I'll just say, people, people often say, for example, retreat into having a really dogmatic position on the age of the earth as a way of feeling safer about the big story. And they think this will protect their kids and keep them in the church. But then their kids go to college and they take some biology classes and then when they come to decide, like, I don't think the evidence stacks up and I was taught that the big story is false, if evolution is true, they're gone. Right? Like, because they've been set up to view it as like it's not, I'm not trying to tell you what to think about that issue. What I'm saying is by being dogmatic on that issue, we lose people. Yes, yes, and that's the, that's the use of meta, as in it's like a story that even goes above the big story, kind of making a, like a force field over it that makes it so that it can't like be challenged or changed or refined or any of those sorts of things. So. <laughs> it was one of my worries that I might have, you know, tried to condense too much philosophy into one time. <laughs> But you're asking, to what extent is Christ that kind of big story that Dave was trying to, like, get more clarity on a second ago, right? In other words, what I would say is what I think orthodoxy does is it presents us with the story of Christ, which itself is a relational story that makes and remakes itself in every single person's life, right? If you look at... Roman at the bus because I like to, and Dave can challenge me if he wants. Um, but uh, Thomas Aquinas and his like Summa Theologica, the story's pretty meted out for everyone, right? <laughs> like if you don't think about it this way, you're wrong. Right? If you don't relate to it this way, you're wrong. Like again and again and again and again, and quite often that's what we as Orthodox tend to do instead of focusing on that relational element that core story that then informs and creates our story as a big, our, our own life becomes a story of life in Christ. Instead, we want to like reach for some story out there that's like this neat little thing to give to everyone. I guess in that sense with what David was saying is when you are certain that that's how it, that story goes, you've actually closed yourself off to growth in the very story itself. So just like I was saying about science, when you're certain that the answer is this way of looking at physics, then you're never going to get Einstein's discoveries. If you're certain that, like, I'll, I'll go very, like, double down right now. If you are certain that you know what orthodox Christianity is, you are in a dangerous spiritual place. Yes. So that's not saying that the, the, that the, the core, the core is there, right? But finding out who he is is a never-ending process, right? 
it's misplaced certainty, or, or expanding that certainty beyond that one core truth, right? Um. <laughs> right, putting it, and putting it, and frankly, in our church, again, going back to what I was saying before, putting it in any one church father, because we can tend to do that. We find the ones we like, we find the ones we don't like, and then we do that. Or if we're not church father readers, we find the podcasts we like and the podcasts we don't like, or the blogs we like and the blogs we don't like, right? And this is the way this sort of thing goes over and over again, right? Yeah, well, I would say in some ways what social media does is ramp up this idea that, actually I would say it, it's rather postmodern in the sense that we all have our little mini narratives going on, but now we're like super attached to those mini narratives and we like scream at each other and we scream at each other because the social media actually takes that relational, that relative sensibility that I was trying to talk about earlier, largely out of the equation, right? You no longer, like I just saw one of my old, my old dissertation advisor today, and we actually started to argue about politics a little bit, and it got a little heated at a moment. But because we care about each other, and because we were face to face, and because we could see what, we step back, you know, and then we actually realized like we had more in common than we thought anyway. And so, if that had been on social media, it would have just been you're a this, you're a that, and boom. And then you have again, this is what the philosopher Levinas, who is like a postmodern Jewish philosopher, said is like, what, for him, no, instead of meta narrative, the word he liked to use is totalizing. You have this totalizing story that fits everything together. So there's, maybe that might actually be helpful to both Dave and Jane's questions too, is you can have a big story, and you can even be certain about core elements of that story, but having it be totalizing, a suitcase that's been shut, right? What, you, you know, what it tends to end up being like is like we all want the suitcase, you know, the suitcase with too much stuff, and you like shut it. And there's always stuff hanging out the sides of the suitcase. So instead of being like, well, there's stuff hanging outside of the suitcase that I can't quite account for with my current story, you just come with a knife and you cut all the stuff that's hanging out off. And you're like, see, now it all fits. Well, <laughs> you did violence to all of your clothes now because <laughs> you were so desperate to fit it all into your totalizing suitcase. <laughs> does, that, does that help clarify the meta-narrative thing on one hand? And also, yeah, I think social media is is very problematic in the sense that it is actually taking out that relational thing. And then, you know, to another thing that's at the underlying this to go with what Dave was talking about a moment ago is for me is that we feel like our concepts, right? Our our conceptual ideas, we always are pretty certain they're right or we wouldn't hold those opinions. When you're talking to someone else in person, you can potentially like play out and possibly be changed or even at least empathetic. But when it's online, there's no face, there's no anything. You can just shout whatever you want at the person and then just walk away. And you know, read the comments on anything, YouTube, Huffington Post, Fox News, whatever. You read the comments on our, it's like, dear God, the worst of humanity unleashed. Um, <laughs> or as they say, never. Never read the comments. Anyway, sorry. I digress. Yes. So, that actually, I thank you for that comment because I think it will help me clarify even better what, what I'm 
trying to get at here is I think people are hearing the attack on meta-narratives as somehow reducing truth value. Okay? In other words, what it's saying is, no, there's no one sphere that can explain everything. In other words, is there anyone in here, really, that thinks that the Bible is a scientific textbook and the church fathers have figured out everything there was to figure out about science? No. We do not have a totalizing meta-narrative of religion that explains to us all of science and history. We don't. Okay? Likewise, science cannot explain human experience of color, of death, of God, of any of these sorts. Of, they try, but they end up in the same problematic, you know, where they were like, oh, well, meditation or prayer, like, does these things in the brain. It's like, well, so does wavelength of light or, you know, green or when you eat pizza and you like it or, you know. So that doesn't mean that you don't enjoy pizza. I saw this horrible, like, kind of totalizing scientific narrative once. There's a serotonin molecule and a dopamine molecule and said, technically, these are the only two things you enjoy. No, right. It's science. And so in that sense, if you want to think of it in terms of bad science and bad religion and bad history is what I'm talking about, that, that can work too. But the idea is it's when any of these disciplines any of these aspects of human life think they can explain everything else, that they become extremely dangerous because they're actually like dealing in areas that they're not even meant to deal with. You read our church fathers, many of them thought, they believed in the classical Greek conception of that all the elements were earth, wind, fire, and water. Well, how many Orthodox are going to be like, no, there are no atoms, it's earth, wind, fire, and water. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. The point is that our story is not about trying to figure out the natural world. It doesn't, it's not a narrative that encompasses all of that, but it may be the most important story. And that actually is where I'm going to go with this, is that I think the, all of the stories, the scientific story, the historical story, the religious story, like they're all important, but I think, as I was saying before, science is really a tool, and unless it's grounded in Christian values, it's going to like it's done many times, do d horrific, destructive things to the world. Right? Likewise, history can be a story that's created to do destructive things, but so can religion. But the point is, no one of these things can explain everything about what there is to existence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, and that, and that is, um, I mean, as a sort of a preview of my, you know, what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. But in my experience, working with young people for, wow, it's weird how time flies, but almost 20 years now, first as a high school teacher, and then as a TA teaching students at Santa Barbara, also at, uh, now as a professor at USD, and also um, with teen soil type stuff and whatnot. Again, this is not a meta-narrative that's going to capture everything, but when we get really concerned about keeping our youth, a lot of times what people mean is keeping our youth thinking the right things and thinking about orthodoxy the way I think about orthodoxy. Instead of having them excited about living this out. Right? And instead, like when we look at these issues, when we look at these issues that postmodern thinkers took to you know, then apply to like gender and sexuality issues and so forth. Or we look at what Marx was like applying to, you know, economic oppression and so forth. A lot of times what, what 
kids get to in college is they start realizing just how bad the world is and just how much Christianity has really failed to be the answer. And they're like, what am I doing in this like place that's just about a bunch of rules, it's about my parents or et cetera that don't want to like get with the times. I'm passionate about like trying to do these good things in the world. And if we're showing them instead that the church is the best place to get those good things done, it makes it a much more attractive thing that people is an anchor that someone wants to come back to instead of just a once-a-week self-help group. In other words, if we're like, the church has better answers to poverty than Karl Marx did, that can get them excited. But if they're not seeing it, or if we're just saying it, and we're not doing it, we lose them. I don't know if how many of you listen to, uh, oh gosh, I'm forgetting, Pop Culture Coffee Hour podcast. Yeah, Steve and Christian. Um, but Christian's been doing a side one now. I, Sarah listens to him, I don't. But see, I just don't listen to podcasts, I'm sorry. The, uh, <laughs> it's not a thing against anyone in particular. I just, I don't know, I just don't. But, um, but he did a profile with another like, uh, young Orthodox person who's, he's not bitter at the church, he's not anything, he just couldn't figure out what the point was anymore. He's going to a church that's like a few blocks away from a place, from a high school where the graduation rate's like 50%. But they're spending all their money and energy and whatnot on their food festivals, on their building projects, on their this and their that, and not even like meaning, any meaningful reaching out to it. And that's where his heart was. And the tragedy is the church should be at the forefront of those kinds of things. And there's so, you know, going back to empirical stuff, there's sociological data that shows in, the, in countries where the church is doing that kind of stuff, church attendance stays high. In countries where the church just looks like a bunch of ideas that like powerful people and wealthy people have, church attendance like it does, has in Western Europe has dropped to like 7% or below. So the answers that a lot of people want to find are like not in like having the right arguments to say back to people. To actually demonstrate with your life the beauty and compassion and love of Christ. Like that is the answer to these sorts of things. And that sort of thing is, means being open to the relational qualities and the like ever-changing aspects of like, no, I, oh, whoa, I'd never talked to someone that experienced this kind of trauma and this is the why that they're making the life choices they make. If you don't let that change you and pray to God and say, well, I don't even know what to do with this. How does this fit into my story? You're not going to be equipped to be Christ to them. So they, actually re they actually relate pretty well, and I think I can give a cohesive answer to it. Um, in that uh, postmodernism, this is, I don't know how I forgot to talk about this aspect. Postmodernism means what? After modernism. Okay. What is modernism then? <laughs> well, modernism is what came after pre-modernism. Okay. So <laughs> but let's kind of define the pre-modern world is the world in which the church was born. Okay. The modern world is what we often sometimes call the enlightenment. Okay. And the idea of the enlightenment is that human reason can construct these narratives that explain everything. Okay. In that sense, then, like, the creed is not a meta-narrative as it is an anchor. 
okay, or a signpost pointing us in the right direction. Right? But the story is going to be written because Christ is not a story of 2,000 years ago. He's a story going on right now in your life, in my life, in the whole body of Christ's, you know, the, the church's life, right? So that story is not even done being written, right? So there's no meta-narrative. What we have, you know, with the way Dionysius puts it is we pray, in, the creed is us praising God as these things because we don't get who he is which is in the anaphora, right? Every Sunday, like, thou art God ineffable, unable to be spoken about, inconceivable, unable to be conceptualized, okay? We're praising God with these terms, and they point us in a direction that we believe is sure and certain in that regard. Right? But we have to be open to that ever-changing thing. And it's really, you know, here's an interesting thing, right? Like with the early church fathers, for most of them, the real interpretation of the Bible, the real, were the moral values you get out of it and the allegory that it is, that any passage is of Christ. Now, most of them in the pre-modern world would have also been like, yeah, sure, the literal story is absolutely true too. Whatever. But it's in the Enlightenment that you get this idea that, that truth has to be the same kind of truth that history and science did. So now it becomes we have to prove every bit of this is literally true the same way you try to construct a literally true history of George Washington or you know, something of that nature. And it's only really at that point that you get people like, become super obsessed with this idea that the literal reading of Scripture is the most important reading. And it's a kind of a really more Protestant thing as well as an Enlightenment thing. Okay? And not all Protestants. But, <laughs> but, you know, in that sense, and then it becomes, and then it spills into all forms of Christianity after that. So postmodernity is itself a reaction to the idea that human reason, whether in the religious mode, the scientific mode, or the historical mode, can figure it all out. That, and that the best way of organizing human life is letting all these different things speak to us in the registers that we do. For us, the most core important one to our, like, actual life in the world is, is our faith in Christ. But these narratives are compatible, not necessarily, you know, mutually exclusive. So. To draw near to God and listen in the midst of these, like, kind of confusing scenarios that the world is presenting us at this point. Yeah, I mean, and that, that I want to emphasize what you said about listening, right, is that, and, and I feel like Melissa was kind of, like, pointing in this direction earlier. It's like, we tend to, it, as just human beings in general, but it's a particular problem in the church, we react against things. We react. And, and we all know how reacting, right? Like, again, for those of us that are married or parents or kids, someone says something that you don't like and you react. Does that usually go over, is that, is that gonna be a healthy <laughs> scenario? Not usually. What's good? Listening empathizing, trying to, and then creatively thinking about what would Christ say to this person? What does this have, where would Christ empathize, but also say go and sin no more? Like holding those things together instead of, you know, because to do the one way is the Pharisees, and to go the other way is just that total relativism of do whatever you want, okay? 
that listening and empathy, that each person is actually like precious, no matter how like wacky we think their ideas are, or they're like, like I'm learning that that fine line of loving and affirming what we can, but not countenancing what we can't, not agreeing with what we can't, like that I think is es essential to not only those of us that are clergy, but to all of us in the church and the way we relate to people. I'm not alienating them. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. What he said. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait till tomorrow. <laughs>